finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. Um, Andrea's my mom and a librarian. I'm me, and I picked a comic book series. We're doing another series. We're back in the the rhythm of doing a longer series of comic books, and we're also back in the sort of safe, warm bosom of 80s DC sort of proto-Vertigo comics. Uh, this is sort of the third one of, of these that we've done, and this is like kind of kind of the the uh, one half of the last leg of the kind of trinity of the sort of like core proto-Vertigo books, uh, the other half being Doom Patrol, which we will cover. Like, so, you know, it's like there's three legs, but one leg is two legs, <laughs> and the two legs are Animal Man and Doom Patrol. And also, two legs bad, four it legs good. It sounds like a uh, Philip Pullman novel where you're trying to describe some weird animal. Yeah. Which is fitting because we're talking about Animal Man. Yeah, this is, uh, this, we're doing volume one, which I don't, does it have a subtitle? I never remember these. I don't think it does, but I know that each of the individual issues have names. Yeah. Uh, but we're doing the first volume of what it will generally be available to be blessed, Animal Man Volume 1, which is the uh, 80s run written entirely by Grant Morris. And this volume has art by uh, Chaz Truog and uh, Tom Grummet. I think uh, there's nine issues in this volume. The first eight are all done drawn by Truog, which I, that might not be how you say his name. And then the last one is drawn by Tom Grummet. Did he do the cover art for no. the individual issues? So the covers are done by Brian Boland, who most people are probably familiar... I like him a lot. Most people are probably familiar with his work from uh, drawing The Killing Joke with Alan Moore. Uh, he was like a like Morrison and like a lot of these sort of British invasion writers and artists. He came out of 2000 AD. He drew a bunch of uh, Judge Dredd stuff. There's a really weird... Uh, I think it's maybe like two issues, not issues, but like two stories spread across two issues of the magazine. Uh, Judge Dredd story that he draws where they go to a farm that is populated by like food, genetically engineered food mascots. So there's, you can hunt them down and there's like Brian Boland drawings of Judge Dredd fighting the Jolly Green Giant. (laughs) Before we get into talking about Animal Man, let's talk a little bit about kind of like the elephant that's in the room of our selections of comic books and how like there's a theme that has developed about us picking comics that are reboots of existing characters and the reboots are always more edgy and modern. Yeah. I think this is like the third one. Like we did Sandman, we did Swamp Thing, Klaus was almost like a reboot of Santa Claus and now we're doing Animal Man who was an older character. I guess that... Grant Morrison revived. Yeah, that's kind of for a long time that was that was like the vertigo thing. Was it like to take sort of lesser or not lesser known, but you know, to sometimes lesser known, sometimes just characters that have sort of fallen out of favor and to reboot them with a some sort of twist and a, and more of a, like a little a more grit, more uh weight to them. 
than they had been treated with previously. But yeah, there's there's definitely kind of a formula here. I realized like reading this one that it's like almost there's that thing where it's like yeah, there these are all sort of like reboots or reinterpretations of these old characters, but they also all pretty much start with a story where the character goes up against another sort of like rebooted character who's more threatening and weird than they had been before because it's like that first volume of Sandman ends with him defeating Dr. D who is Dr. Destiny who's been reinterpreted as this much more threatening character you have the Floronic Man aka Woodrow in Swamp Thing and then here we have Buana Beast as our sort of antagonist our tragic antagonist well I really like this I know we'll talk a lot about buddy and what his aesthetic is and i i did not read this in the 80s when it came out Mm -hmm. so this was all new to me and it didn't seem it kind of was a little bit dated in some of the things but Mm -hmm. then it really had these sort of like timely themes that are still even relevant now like a lot of it has to deal with like animal rights and man's impact on the environment there's a lot of comments on social issues that are happening in the 80s. There's a comment on homelessness. There's a comment on the AIDS epidemic. I also like that it was a comment on like the view of what a traditional, in quotation marks, superhero is like and mm-hmm. how Buddy is sort of the anti-superhero. And I like that. And I like the sort of embracing of like gender roles, I think, Buddy's wife is a really great character. Embracing of, like, the exploration of yes. gender roles. Not, like, embracing of gender roles. Yeah, yeah. Like, you see, you know, like, Buddy is a father, but he also does housework. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, superheroes aren't usually depicted doing that. And I like that it was sort of, like, a nod to, like, detective fiction and mysteries, which I really liked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get into all of that stuff. But I... Yeah, I'm not sure what it is about these, like, reinterpretations that are appealing to me. I, mean, I think it's part of it is just that, like, I like, you know, when a character... When they reach a stage with a character where it's, like, now we can really start, like, experimenting and exploring. Like, it's these are all sort of, like, indicative of this kind of, like, postmodern phase of superhero stuff. Where it's, like, they're willing to sort of radically reinterpret, like the tropes and the concepts and that I think that's what's really appealing about a lot of these to me and yeah this is like a very much like a a lot of this is a an exploration of like what is it actually what would it actually be like to be a superhero like what are the things that you would have to worry about yeah um do we want to talk about the animal man the character before this well i was gonna just say like if you could give us like a brief sort of history of like Buddy Baker, that's his name, right? Yeah. About him and his first appearance in comics. Because I think he goes back to, like, the 50s? I think it's the 60s, specifically. He's, like, a Silver Age character. He uh, was co-created... One of his co-creators... I forget the actual people. One of them is Carmen Infantino, who specifically is, like, the co-creator of the Silver Age Flash. The artist who worked on... uh, you know, Barry Allen's first appearance. Like, I definitely sort of see Animal Man as kind of an attempt to get another kind of Flash-type, like, 
fun sci-fi hero with like a flashy costume. Um, yeah, this, so the original story was probably written by France Heron, who worked on Captain Marvel Jr. Uh, but there's some suggest- like possibility that the writer may have been Dave Wood. I guess they didn't really have like super clear uh, credits there. He originally appeared in Strange Adventures, which is like an anthology series, which, uh, despite what you might believe, is not the anthology series where uh, Adam Strange appeared. <laughs> he appeared in, uh, I think, Mystery in Space. But he was a straight arrow superhero. Yeah. So he, like, what is his origin story? His origin story is that he's a stunt, Hollywood stuntman who finds a crashed alien spaceship and it imbues him with the power to... And this is the thing that this comic deals with, is that his powers are a little confusing. So his name is Animal Man. He, he doesn't turn into animals and he doesn't talk to animals, mostly. His power is that if an animal is in the area... He can duplicate its abilities, but it's this, and I think this leads into some stuff that happens later on in the comic. It's this very, like, symbolic and, or, like, maybe even totemic kind of copying, where it's like, if there's a bird, he can copy the power of flight. He doesn't grow wings. He can just fly, like, the same way that Superman flies. It's just, like, the bird has the quality of flight, and now Buddy has the quality of flight. And it's not like a physical thing. And the, we, it, it's talked about explicitly later on this volume is that he doesn't really know how his powers actually work. Uh, but yeah, so he originally appeared in there he, in Strange Adventures. He, it was this very straightforward, like, guy gets powers, guy uses pow- his powers to fight crime. He appeared in a couple issues of Strange Adventures. He Before this comic, before the Animal Man number one that we read... He had really only been in like 11 comics prior, but he had been around for almost 20 years. So he wasn't a major. No, this isn't like Swamp Thing where it was like, Swamp Thing had a whole run with a developed supporting cast and villains and a character arc that like wrapped up right before Alan Moore took over. Uh, This was like a character that was pretty obscure. So obscure, in fact, that his, other than his appearances in Strange Adventures, his most notable appearances were in a crossovers with Superman as part of some a team that was literally called the Forgotten Heroes. Who the premise of that was the, the thing the thing with Forgotten Heroes is they're so forgotten that they made a straight up a TV adaptation of that concept and didn't call it that and never acknowledged that it was an adaptation of that cuz that's what Legends of Tomorrow is. Legends of Tomorrow is but for all intents and purposes a adaptation of the Forgotten Heroes cuz the premise of the Forgotten Heroes is that they were Obscure characters whose books had been canceled, who were, um, had kind of fallen by the wayside, who were united together under another obscure character, the Immortal Man, to fight Vandal Savage. And then literally, if you watch Legends of Tomorrow, they're characters who are going to be forgotten, who are banded together by Rip Hunter, who is in The Forgotten Heroes and also in Legends of Tomorrow, to fight Vandal Savage. Interesting. And so, like, the Forgotten Heroes are, like, Animal Man, uh, Rip Hunter... Cave Carson, who's like a guy whose whole deal is that he has like a digging machine. <laughs> uh, he um, Dolphin, who's like a water-based hero who would eventually become a supporting character in the 90s Aquaman series. Uh, Dane Durrance of the Sea Devils, who are like ocean-going adventurers of the submarine, who would also show up in Aquaman. I Oh, and Kong Gorilla, who weirdly, besides Animal Man, 
is maybe the most animal man and rip hunter besides them he's probably the most successful dude to come out of that because he would eventually weirdly join the justice league now this is a total tangent i do want to tell people about kong gorilla because it's one of my it is he's kind of fascinating in his weirdness he was a character that was originally introduced i think his name was like congo bill or something like that and he was like a straight up straightforward human man jungle adventurer like like a uh um, Alan Quartermain character, and then then that that wasn't working. They they decided to reboot him by having him find like a mythical like object or a gorilla sanctuary or something, and get cursed to turn into an intelligent golden gorilla. And then he's just been a gorilla since then. And he, at one point, he joins the Justice League. They love like. Jungle themed superheroes. Yeah, well, we're gonna see a bunch of that here. What I mean, it's like I think the thing is like a lot of it. I well, Congo Bill or whatever his name was was clearly an attempt to do like Alan Quarterman or some shit like that. But I think what we'll see with some of the characters that show up in this or like Buana Beast, it's like Tarzan comics were popular, so why wouldn't you want to have your own Tarzan? That makes sense. And I think with Buana Beast, this which is the character that will is important in this. It was specifically an attempt to do, like, what? how do we combine Tarzan with a superhero? So, yeah. So, and, uh, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths happens. You can listen to our Swamp Thing series if you want to hear about Crisis on Infinite Earths. Animal Man is, like, m- briefly involved in that. And then this comic was supposed to be a miniseries. I guess that, I assume Grant Morrison pitched to DC. It was going to be a four-issue miniseries about Animal Man. And the premise was that, you know... It was going to deal with animal rights. And then it was successful and they expanded it into an ongoing series. But originally, this was just going to be this for the first four issues of this. Yeah, that's one of the questions. When we get to some of the issues, I was sort of confused if they weren't laying the groundwork for longer story arcs. I think there's, there's like a mild hinting at a longer story arc in the first three issues. But it really gets into it. Like, issue five, we will talk about... Issue five, the Coyote Gospel, is the fucking jam. Yeah. And we will talk about it. And that's the point where I think once they know that they're going to have an ongoing series, that one is, like, a big blast of foreshadowing, while also just being a great, weird story on its own. So, let's get into... So, we know Buddy Baker. He's a stuntman. He's a sort of... Not a failed superhero, but just not a like a super successful superhero. Yeah, they do a cool thing where it's basically in the in-universe is the same thing that happened out of universe. Like, he was a character that showed up and he just didn't really, like, catch the public imagination. Yeah. Like, it's, this, it's exactly the same thing. He's around, he's, like, competent, he does his job. Nobody particularly cares or remembers him very well. But he's, um, he's a dad, he's a husband... And, in fact, his family plays, like, a role in the stories. So his wife is Ellen, and she's a feminist. And I like this. She's the main breadwinner. Yeah. And she's an artist. And I guess at one point she's doing, like, storyboards for a TV show. And then at another point she's, like, maybe writing, like, a children's book. I don't remember exactly when this comes up. But, yeah, she her dream is to write and illustrate a children's book. And then she's currently working as a storyboard artist. Because the comic is set... I mean, we mentioned it being a stuntman. Like, the comic is set in L.A. 
Yeah. Like he is he essentially over the course of this becomes LA's superhero. Yeah, and he she I like that she's supportive of him and she believes in him, but she also has no problems knocking him down a peg when he gets a little too full of himself, which I think is nice. Yeah, the comic, I mean, at least the first four issues almost splits the time equally between her and Buddy. Yeah. Because we have him, so he, he decides in the beginning that he is going to, well, we're introduced to him, it's like the most like, it's, it's almost cheesy, it's like the most like elemental, he's literally saving a cat, yeah. is the way we're introduced to him. He's up in a tree and he's using his animal man powers. Uh, to get the neighbor's cat down from the tree. And we see, it's a nice, it's a very, like, smart introduction. Because one, we get to see he's a nice guy. We get to see that he's specifically a nice guy and that he is, like, down to earth. Like, it's a very simple thing. He's helping his neighbor. He's literally like, be kind to thy neighbor. Yeah, he like, Uh, they live in, like, a working class neighborhood. Yeah. With, you know, it's. They have a yard, but they're close. Like, the neighbors are always really close. Like, you can see at one point, they're talking to the neighbors out, out of the window. So, the neighbors are close. Like, the t- the houses are very close together. And it's kind of like a neighborhood where everybody knows everything. Yeah. Plus, we get, to, we get to see him helping an animal specifically, which is important thematically. And it shows us how his powers work. Because he copies the agility from the cat to land on his feet. And so, it's like a really efficient introduction to Buddy. I, well, he has, and then also he has two kids. Yeah. He has Cliff, who is like this tough teenage boy who's going through like this phase where he's like embarrassed of his parents and his sister. I and think he's like a tween. He's, tween. he's like, he's, I think he's supposed to be like 12 or 13. He's got a mullet. He's like kind of a, you know, kind of a Bart Simpson-y sort of figure. And then he has Maxine, his little sister. And she's very caring and concerned. Mm-hmm. And she loves cats. And so I kind of like, I don't know if it becomes a thing in the future, but she seems like she has the same empathy for animals that her father has. She yeah. doesn't say she has superpowers, but she just cares mm-hmm. for the creatures in the neighborhood. Yeah. I think they do a, an interesting thing with them where it initially, like to, for the outside observer, you would look at them. And assume that Cliff takes after Buddy and Maxine takes after, wait, what? Ellen. Yeah, Ellen. Um, but it, then it's like, oh, no, it's actually the opposite way because it's like, she, you know, she's the tough one and Buddy is this, like, sensitive dude. And then I guess the only recurring character after that is Roger, who is Buddy's friend and possibly his agent? He's his friend who is he is going to become his manager. His manager. Who he asked to become his manager. But yeah, he's like his he's another dude he knows through show business. But yeah, so Buddy basically decides like he's gonna become a superhero again. Like he's sort of been like on hiatus and he's like gonna get back into it. Uh he's almost thirty. Uh and he wants to be a he wants to follow his dream of being a superhero again. Uh and there's also an important thing, like I said, this is post-Crisis on Infinite Earths. The Justice League at this point is the Justice League International or the Justice League, the Justice League Europe. Yeah. And this is like a, it's a smaller scale Justice League. That book, which I really like, we probably won't cover on this podcast because it's just really long, uh, is much more focused on like interpersonal relationships. There's a little bit of, which we get a lot of in this series too, the kind of exploration of superhero as celebrity. And that because Crisis was this big reboot, 
DC had like they cut you know they brought in John Byrne and they brought in George Perez and they were like you can do you're in charge of Superman you're in charge of Wonder Woman they're they're they've got Jim Starlin with doing Batman but they've also got like Batman Year One happening so those characters are all wrapped up in their own thing so the Justice League wasn't allowed to use those like top tier A list characters. So that's why the Justice League in this comic is like Captain Adam and Blue Beetle, who is continually clowned on in this book. Which is why it is reasonable for Buddy to think that he could join the Justice League. And he's right, and he does do he does join the Justice League at one point. He's not super important in that book, which is a little bit of a bummer. But all the while that this is happening, there is this other figure that we see. This guy in a trench coat with no shirt wearing a weird helmet who is stumbling around the city wrapped uh, with, like, these, like, mental attacks and visions. He's looking for something. He can hear monkeys screaming, and he sees a vision of a star, and he gets in a fight with a dude who's trying to mug him and, like, smashes the guy's head and destroys his hand and runs off. And then we get, like, a kind of a extended sequence of Buddy training to use his powers. Yeah, this is when, like, it's a good example of, like, Alan. Like, she's helping him mm-hmm. do his training, but she's also, like, roasting him for, like, some of the stuff that he does. And then at one point, Buddy, who... I mean, this is a constant theme in there. Buddy makes these sort of misguided decisions. And one of the things he decides to do is he's going to go on some talk show called the Dick Griffith Show, which I guess is supposed to be like a daytime talk show. And he kind of gets <laughs> roasted on that, too. Yeah. So he... I mean, it's like... A lot a weird, A lot of the story is like about this... Uh, you know, it's about like public perceptions and stuff like that. Like, he he goes on and he, he apparently had like this whole interview where he talked really passionately... And it's all cut out, and it's mostly just this, like, sequence where the guy makes fun of him and calls him the Human Zoo, which is also the title of this issue. Oh, I guess we should have said that the first nine issues are from 1988 to 1989. Yeah, yeah. And then it's contemporary in the comic. Also to note, while they're watching him get roasted on TV, uh, this is also, I think, the first time we see his full costume. Yeah, so describe his costume to people. Well, right now, (laughs) it's like a orange like you know spandex bodysuit like a superhero would wear with a big blue a in the center and then he's got like this like blue shoulders leading up to his face mask but he's got that kind of like gambit like head sock mask where the top is cut off so you can see his blonde hair and he's got like goggles uh which at first they're basically just like lenses on his mask they will evolve over time into just full-on goggles that he wears. Um, and he's got little blue boots and little blue gloves. His wife also mentions that the suit was very expensive. Yes, this, <laughs> like, there's a lot of very real, like, family drama stuff. He spent <laughs> a bunch of money on this suit and he never wears it. And then, that's also part of how he sells her on, like, I'm going to be a superhero. He's like, well, I'm going to wear the suit, right? So I'll use the suit now. <laughs> but she's always complaining about, like, how, like, frivolous he is. There's another part later on where he becomes a vegetarian and he throws away all their meat. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But also of note that um, his daughter's reading Where the Wild Things Are while they're watching him on TV. Yeah. Which comes up later. I don't remember if it's in this story or not, but they directly quote Where the Wild Things Are. 
But then the next page, after having seen his costume, which looks very naked, like when we see it on TV. Oh, it's like skin tight. Yeah. He shows up in the doorway, and he's got a new element to his costume, which is this blue jacket. Now, I want to talk about the jacket, because I love I love superheroes with jackets, in general. I love his jacket, particularly. I think it's brilliant. I think it's like a really... It adds... It's a One, it's a good costume design aesthetic. They don't have to... It updates his look without completely reinventing his costume. Two, I think it says a lot about his characterization. It shows us... Uh, that he is practical and pragmatic. Because she asks him about it, and he's like, yeah, I gotta have my, where am I gonna put my keys and stuff? Oh, he's such a dad. Yeah. I mean, that's like a dad thing right there. Yeah, he's practical, he's pragmatic, he's not overly concerned with his image, like, he chooses this because it's utilitarian. It's also a thing that underlines his status as uh, an underdog. Because I think you read this, and you're like, okay, he has to worry about his keys. And it raises this question where, like, well, why doesn't Superman have to worry about his keys? And you're like, Superman doesn't have to worry about his keys because he's Superman, and Animal Man is Animal Man, and that's why he has to worry about his keys. He's on another level. If he was on the level of Superman, he wouldn't need to care about his keys. But he does here. Um, and you know, and also it shows that he's like a family man because he's got to be able to get into his house to like feed his kids or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I love that jacket. I think it's a great addition. Also, and he wears it for the rest of the series. I also like that it's obviously... It's blue. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously not like a cool leather jacket. Like, no. It's like some kind of like cotton jacket that he bought at I, the Sears or something. 100% always thought of it as being a members only jacket. It's exactly what it looks a little bit like. I mean, it's a little edgier than that because it's like the 80s. But definitely, I could see that. And like, it is the 80s. So that would be like stylistically like very... Mm-hmm. On brand, or you know what? I actually meant the opposite. He is concerned about his appearance. He does talk about it being slightly embarrassing wearing a skin tight <laughs> costume, and so it's like, yeah, like he's a guy who like Superman doesn't need to think about his body. Superman doesn't have body image issues, but he does kind of because he's a normal guy. Well, yeah, because he talks about being out of shape and having to get back into shape so that he can, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there's immediately a coloring error, and they color his jacket to look yellow on the next page. <laughs> um. yeah. I like the use of color in the in this series. I think it's kind of, it's it's a very limited palette, mm-hmm. and the people are depicted like you know either not colored or colored specific colors, and like the backgrounds and stuff are kind of. Well, the, even though I'm a, I called them out for having a coloring error, but even on this page, there's this thing they do a couple times that I really like, where they'll show when he's drawing power from an animal. A lot of times they'll draw the animal in, like, negative space in the panel. Like, just, like, the kind of flat image of it. Tying back into the thing I said where his powers are very, like, symbolic. They do that same sort of effect early on in the thing I was talking about with the guy stumbling around and having the vision of the star. That's the way the star is rendered. It's like as this like negative space encroaching in on the panel, which is a cool effect. So one of the reasons why I thought Maxine might have the same powers as her dad is that earlier in the issue, she's drawing a picture and she draws like a stick figure monkey and then she says that he's screaming. Yes. Which is sort of the same like imagery that Buddy is picking up. Yeah, there, I think there's definitely a huge implication that she's got, if not the same powers as him, some sort of similar related powers. I also like that, like, 
Cliff at one point is just wearing a black t-shirt as his heavy metal hero. Mm-hmm. And then at one point the mom is wearing a shirt as his world's greatest mom, but you never see Buddy wearing a shirt as his like, world's greatest dad. <laughs> That's the thing. I do, we'll talk, it's more prevalent <laughs> later, but like, he's not, he is a good dad, but he is not a perfect dad. Like, the comic allows him to fuck up with also without making it a story about like, his failings as a father. It's just acknowledging that like, he's human. He doesn't always quite know the right thing to say and he gets a little too wrapped up in himself sometimes i mean later on there's a really clear situation with cliff where he he doesn't even turn to his dad for help no yeah we'll talk about there's another male figure well he turns to well to the more person we would all like to turn to in our time of need the world's dad (laughs) the universe's dad Uh, but yeah, so uh, uh, the other thing, while all of this is happening, there's also a part where um, that guy, dude approaches Star Laboratories, which is clear like that's what he was having the vision of. And he takes a um, some kind of elixir. And then Buddy is called in to th- investigate this break-in at Star Laboratories. But the best is he's hired because... The lab couldn't get Superman. Yeah. So they had to get the only thing that they could afford, which is Buddy. And they don't even know how his powers work when they talk to him. Like, they're just like, okay, I guess you're a superhero. But Buddy's kind of like in a situation where he really wants to start getting back into doing high-profile jobs. So I don't think he also himself did not investigate what the job was. Yeah, so what they tell him is that they're working on an AIDS vaccine and they're testing it on monkeys. Which he's already wary of. And then he walk. There's this like... The slow roll of this reveal is so good. There's a, They're walking through the laboratory. And he's talking to this scientist. Um, and he's like, what? Like, he's telling him the situation. And he's reaching this conclusion where he's like, why do you need a superhero for this? Like, this just sounds like a break-in. Like, this just sounds like you should call the cops. And then they get to the ruined laboratory. And it's like, well, the first indication that they need a superhero is that the metal doors are all, like, torn off and bent to shit. And then the next page, the last page of the issue, is a full splash page reveal of a horrific mass of fused-together screaming monkeys. Well, yeah. I mean, it is. But I think also this is starting to show Morrison's um, intention to make Buddy about animal rights activism. Yeah. Which I guess started to take sort of like a... Um, a more aggressive stance in the 80s. Like, there was a... You know, like, PETA was in existence, but it was also now... There was a more of, like, a... I don't know, not extreme, but there was more... There was a push towards, like, more graphic, like, depictions of animals to try to get people to stop eating meat or supporting Mm -hmm. animal research and things like that. And I think this sort of ties right into it. And then along with the sort of secondary story, which is there's a group of these sort of hunters that are going on a weekend trip and they're kind of violent and at one point one of them shoots a seagull out of the sky and they're going to like this forest, which is also where Ellen and Maxine are going for some kind of like nature time. Yeah, I think it's just, it's near their house. Yeah. Uh, the, oh, the, yeah. The other th- character that we haven't mentioned is that the, um, what is his name? 
the their neighbor's husband is like a Archie Bunker or like Mr. Wiederman. Yeah, Wiedermeyer. Wiedermeyer, yes. He's like a yeah. You know, oh, leave me alone. I'm I'm just trying to have a beer and relax. And we like for all most of the story, we only ever see him. Like, laying on, like, a lawn chair with his hat tipped over his eyes. Yeah, and you really get the impression that he's kind of, like, annoyed by this young family that's very disruptive. That's their next-door neighbor. But his wife is very nice and approachable, and she likes Buddy and his family. Yeah, she's kind of a crazy cat lady. Yeah. So. Uh, but, yeah, there, there are other supporting characters that are important in this story. So, yeah, so that's the end of the first issue. What did you think coming to the end of this issue? I think I, this is when I started to realize that it was like leaning, like I said, heavily into like a comment on like animal rights and animal rights activism and the dangers of hunting and the effect that these sort of research facilities have on animals. And I also think it was interesting because it's a commentary, like, you know, this is right at the time of like the AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. and this lab is working on an AIDS vaccine. So Buddy immediately thinks like they're good guys. Yeah. 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 I, I think there's a lot of like, there, we'll get, when we get to the end, we can sort of unpack all of it, but there's a lot of commentary going on here. But I think having the hunters, the hunters are almost like cartoonish, but I think that they're useful there having them and also the lab facility. It ends up crafting this sort of broader picture of like this is a story about like the way humans use animals and the extent to which humans feel entitled to the like the right the lives of animals well, that's for their you, benefit yeah you see that with the hunters because they're talking about how they're going to shoot all this stuff and you know they're like their motive is like to kill with guns without like even not even for food at this point like yeah. they just shoot the bird and just Leave it lying there. Yeah, they're just assholes. It's also like this, I do like this comic has like a counterpoint. Like it's like you have Swamp Thing, which was all about like uh, nature and the the like plants and the ecosystem. And this is like more specifically about like the the lives of animals. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so then the next issue opens with an, a silent sequence of a cat hunting a rat. Uh, just to really like drive home the symbolism. But yeah, so the next issue is called Life in the Concrete Jungle, and we get that the. But what did you think about the monkey mass? Well, I thought it was kind. Of, it was supposed to be like extremely. Gro- I mean, we. It was grotesque, and it yes. was supposed to be. But I was thinking about like if Sandman is to fantasy and Swamp Thing is to horror, then. I just completely lost my. This is the science fiction, what, what, or just superheroes in general? Forget that. I I, I totally lost oh, my train of thought. Uh, I yeah, it's grotesque. I love it. It's so fucked up and weird. Like it's just it's an arrestingly disturbing image. Like they don't they talk about it here. Like, but also I think it gives you your. I mean, other than seeing the mysterious person who is distraught and searching for something in the city you don't really get a sense of what this person's powers could be and they're fucking weird we'll talk about him when he's revealed but buona beast is one of the strangest characters that dc has in their roster it's a weird i mean i could see why he was connected to animal man it makes a lot of sense when you realize the full nature of his powers but yeah it is very strange but what i think is kind of really even more disturbing is that 
the scientists aren't like grossed out. Like Buddy is obviously shocked and distressed by this. And then when they show the full panel, he has this like terrified look on his face. But the scientist is kind of like, eh, you know, he doesn't really even really care. Well, yeah, he says he says fascinating, isn't it? Look at their eyes. They simply can't comprehend what it has become. They're dying, of course. It's dying. Pity. Like, he wants to study it. It's just like, you know, it's fucked up. And then all of this is interrupted by a giant eight-foot-tall... Oh, no, by him telling of the story about the break-in, where apparently the thing that broke in was a eight-foot-tall cockroach man that completely traumatized uh, one of the lab assistants because she was already afraid of uh, insects when this happened. And he's, like, talking very clinically about this thing. Like, he mentions that, like, you know, there's clearly something beyond science happening here because if a cockroach was to grow to that length, its trachea would, like, collapse and it wouldn't be able to breathe. Um which is interesting because, like, a lot of times in comic books they have these sort of fantastical elements and no one thinks about the practicality of it. Yeah. So then Buddy decides he's going to use powers that he can get from a dog to track down the cockroach man to figure out who broke into the lab. Yeah. And uh, he, the guy is insisting that the dog is, like, perfectly healthy. And he's like... You don't think, and he's like, I, you know, he's, Buddy is protesting against that. And the guy's like, well, we wouldn't, you, we wouldn't uh, be performing neurosurgery on sick animals. <laughs> and it's like, oh, great. Uh, but yeah, he sets off to track it down. And we get like a little bit more of the hunters. They shoot a deer at this point. It's like very clearly supposed to be evoking Bambi. Um, There's a lot of this sort of, even later on when it's very heavy handed, mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of nods to like the depiction of animals and animals that, you know, how they're treated in like pop culture yeah. in a lot of these. There's lots of talk about Disney and, mm-hmm. you know, pop like television and like the thing with the where the wild things are and how animals are treated in yeah. general. Even beyond, yeah, even beyond this particular four issue story, we get some of that. But we also see that they're. Like, this is the the indication that they're in the same forest that's near their house. Because uh, the cat, the missing cat, who was the one who was attacking the rat in the beginning, we see her delivering the animal, or bringing it back to her, like, uh, little nest so she can eat it, so she can feed her babies. And they kill a deer that's, like, right next to them. Yeah, and I think this is also when it starts to converge, where Ellen and Maxine are actually going to have some kind of interaction with the hunters i also think it's funny that when he like he, buddy is like using the dog senses to track the cockroach man mm-hmm. and he's going around town and he thinks he's being like really cool and superhero-y and all the people <laughs> like you're a fucking weirdo stop crawling around on the yeah, ground exactly <laughs> um i also like this this was uh you know i liked the wick, the wick and the divine, and I like the one shots we did, but like th- this part in particular, and I think there's a little bit in the first issue where it was like, "Ooh, look at this poetic ass narration." I was like, "And these fucking dense panel structures, I I feel at home here." It's like the city's a Disneyland of scents and perfumes. There's a whole smellscape that we just never experience. And then he's like jumping around and he lands on the ground, and somebody asks him for his autograph and is disappointed because like skateboarding kid. 
Yeah, he's wearing an anthrax shirt, literally. <laughs> uh, and he's disappointed when he gets the autograph and he's not Aquaman. <laughs> and then he skateboards away. And then we get another really good sequence right after that where he goes to eat his lunch, which is chips and salsa, on the roof in the middle of his hunt for this cockroach man. And he gets a visit from Superman, who, like, it's kind of, of remember. He, he, like, unintentionally big times him. But he's kind of like, oh, I vaguely remember who you are. Aren't you, like, some minor superhero? Yeah, he's like, oh, we've met. He Like, they show up and he he doesn't remember his name immediately, but he remembers that he's met him. Which, like, that is brutal. <laughs> uh, and then he's like, oh, like, your costume has got big A on it, huh? Um, and he's like, yeah. And he's, like, looking down at his chest. And then in the middle of the conversation, Superman's like, oh, sorry, there's a light aircraft in trouble over Port Townsend, and he just splits and leaves him there. And then I, I figured you would like this. Yes, this is one of my second favorite references in, in the... Because <laughs> he's listening to a Walkman the whole time he's doing this. Because there's another reason why he has to have the jacket to put his Walkman in. And R.E.M. starts singing Superman. <laughs> and it's like, I also feel like that's like, okay, it's a cheesy reference. Like, literally, they start playing the song about Superman. I also think that, like... It tells us a fair amount about what kind of guy Buddy is that he's hanging out on the roof eating chips and salsa and listening to R.E.M. <laughs> and then it immediately cuts to another sort of... I guess that what I was saying earlier is there's a lot of, like, in this issue specifically, a lot of, like, body horror. Yes. Which, which I guess is... I, I'm, people know I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> but, yeah, there's a lot of that. Because, like, the, the, the dude... So then you see, like, the a, beast. a homeless man. Yeah, he fi- he finds a homeless guy and a rat, and he forcibly fuses them together. And this is when you're really clear when you learn that his powers is to take two living creatures and fuse them into, like, a chimera, almost. Yeah. Which then when you realize, because, like, I... Which is kind of a weird... Like you said, it's weird. Extremely weird power. Um, so, like, I... I didn't give you, like, a, I gave you, like, a background on Animal Man, like, when we were going to read this. I was like, okay, here's what you need to know about Animal Man, which is really not that much. The comic assumes you don't know that much about him, because the comic is about how he's an obscure, not about, but it's premised on him being an obscure character. I didn't tell you anything about Buona Beast because when I first read this comic, I didn't know anything about him. He was, like, a totally obscure character from, like, the 60s or 50s. I, I don't even remember. Uh, so, like... When you get to the end of this story and you realize he's supposed to be a superhero, it's even weirder. Because, like, those powers are strange, but they're also, they seem like supervillain powers. It's like, I don't get how this guy is a superhero. It is powerless to make these, like, monstrosities. But if you go back and look at, like, the older comics he's in, there's a lot of, like, him, like, flying around on, like, a homemade griffin or whatever. I mean, this part is really bizarre because like we don't know at this point even that it's the beast yeah it's just a shadowy figure so he we don't know he just assumes that buddy is against him so he creates this sort of rat man to fight buddy and then buddy is like on the phone talking to his wife and give like saying hey i just met spider (laughs) superman and she's kind of like great good for you and then he gets attacked. Like, He's also, like, uh, trying to be, like, to skirt around the fact that he didn't do any, like, networking with <laughs> Superman when he showed up. And then he gets kicked out of the phone booth by this enormous <laughs> rat man. 
Uh, and it cuts back to her and Maxine, and they're, they're they're going out to the woods, and she's gonna do some painting, and you know the kid's gonna play. We get a little bit more Mr. Riedermeyer uh, hanging out in his Hawaiian shirt with his hat on. I like this part too, where it's like the these sort of characters that look like they could have been like in the background of a B fifty twos. Yeah, yeah. Like they he... got like a huge. She's got like a huge bouffant, fishnet stockings, and he's like a short man in like a baggy suit. And they have this like giant like land yacht, and then they're walking and they're fighting, and then all of a sudden, boom! Buddy comes flying out of the sky and lands on their car, but and then she, a giant rat shows up, and they start fighting like right in front of them. But she has specifically; she's carrying a little box that is her new pet in it, which is a praying mantis, uh, and she's like, I guess, bought it as a way to like passive aggressively poke at her boyfriend Lester because she says it, uh, prey on in, they prey on innocent little bugs who don't know any better. I'm going to call it Lester. <laughs> and then Buddy has to take the power from the praying mantis to get himself super strength to kick the rat away. And then he wrecks their car by lifting it up with the rat inside and throwing it around. But the rat is very, he's very creepy looking. He's very muscular. Yeah. And he's like this like purpley flesh tone color. And he's kind of They like... do a good job of like, he looks off. Like, it's not just like, oh, this guy got fused with a rat, and now it's like, a rat person. It's like, it doesn't turn into the great mouse detective. Like, there's something just, even though he's not, like, like dripping or gross or anything, there's still something just slightly disturbing just about the way it looks and And I think moves. also what, what else is kind of, like, disturbing and really heightens the sense of, like, danger is that in between, like, the fight scenes, there's, it cuts to Ellen meeting the hunters and having a confrontation and then you realize that Ellen is like in danger Mm -hmm. because of this like toxic masculinity of these hunters yeah they're they get real creepy and demanding with her and but then the whole time it's cutting back and forth between two buddy having this like desperate fight with this rat and like they run into the alley and he's like he's a superhero and he has this thought of like where is superman when you need him and there's a great single panel of him punching the rat in the face. Which is, like, weird because... And also, it's the only full-colored panel. Yeah, yeah. The rest of them are just, like, it's either the rat is colored or Buddy is colored. Yeah. Uh, but then they their fight, get, you know, it gets into this alley. They, it gets up close and personal. He's using... has to use, like, improvised weapons. It's a very, like, frantic and brutal fight. It's, again, it's, like, driving home that, like, Buddy isn't, like... He he is not like a superhero superhero. Like for all of his powers, he's just a fucking dude. And like, yeah, he still has to like physically fight this rat. And then it swipes at him, and he goes, "I try to hit it, try to swing." It's all these like close up panels, like these real tall thin panels. Where we're just seeing like his face and his hands, his with his fist clenched. And he's like, "I try to swing a punch, but there's nothing there." Oh God! Oh Jesus! My arm! My arm! And then, like the the shots of his arm have been like panning out until we see that it is not connected to his body anymore. Oh yeah, that is brutal. So yeah, so we get sort of he's stuck like in this urban setting, and as a character that has to draw on animal to get his powers, he's like in a alley where there's like no animal. Yeah. It gets his arm chopped off, and as he drifts out of consciousness, he sees the rat and the guy 
like splitting apart and then the last shot is this just like cold blue full page shot like looking like a crime scene photo down from above on him clutching his like shoulder where his arm used to be yeah and And there's just trash around him and it's like there's your fucking superhero he's on the he's in the trash on the ground with his arm chopped off and it's like brutal that is very brutal uh and that is the, that's the end of issue two. Issue three, the cover is uh, also pretty grotesque. Of him, fi- it's him finding a uh, like a chimpanzee covered in like pustules in a cage, and he looks very distressed. I think this is funny because his glasses look like grandma glasses. <laughs> They're uh, very pointy at the tops for yeah. some reason, and he's making like this face. <laughs> Bolin draws his glasses to look more like. Like big, like cat's eye sunglasses, and he draws his jacket to look more like a leather jacket. I think I like Bolin's interpretation of Animal Man because it feels very like '80s art punk to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, and then like uh, this is like where the story starts to get so sad. Like leading up to the part that like actually genuinely makes me cry. Like because we start. With, so, like, the whole time, uh, the Beast, he's been looking for something or someone. He's been trying to get into the, he, you know, he's concerned about the monkey screaming, but there's someone in particular he's trying to get at, that he, which is why he keeps assaulting Star Labs. And so, we cut to th- that creature, which is this, like, evolved ape that's, like, his sidekick and friend and implied throughout this story lover. I, I was thinking, like... Yeah, like his partner in some way. That they, they have a they have a very intense, powerful connection. Yeah, very intense. And her, her name is Dejuba, and we, this issue starts from her perspective. And they're like they are literally connected. They have like a telepathic connection, and she's like he's coming. The white god is coming, um, but like she's dying from this disease that they've infected her with. And this is like a clear indication that's like. I don't think they're working on an AIDS vaccine. Yeah, they're not making an AIDS vaccine. Uh, And there's, like, she talks about, like, there's the chimpanzee's name was Rune. He signed it across the room to her before he grew too weak to even move his fingers. And he said, I'm leaving here, Rune had said once. I'm going home. Piss on them. I'm going home. And they're, they're like, prisoners. Yeah, and I think this is sort of where you realize that this is sort of a comment on... um, animal research like doing like genetic or doing any type of research on like living creatures yeah and it's like the way the narration works here is we have her text where she's like he's coming and she feels this connection she hears him like whispering her name across the connection and she's like the beast is coming to take her home the beast the beast is coming the beast who walks but then there are interruptions with parentheses which is like the objective um third person narration that's talking about like the disease that's killing her and like the the you know the chimpanzee dying. It's like really brutal. I think also too it depicts even the chimpanzee who's a minor character. It sort of em- embodies these sort of human traits that these animals yeah. have and how close they are to like what to like humanity. Yeah, you know, like they're communicating with each other. They have empathy for each other. They have feelings. They're being hurt. They're confused, they're frustrated, and then... 
I also think it's just really well done, efficient writing. Like, this character's in one panel and it's basically introduced having already been dead. And it's like, yes, I will be sad if you show me a chimpanzee that suffers and dies. But that one little bit of, like, piss on them, I'm going home, is just like, boom. Like, now I get, like, that who Rune is. Like, oh, he's kind of sassy. And it makes it all the more tragic that he dies in this senseless way. Um, but yeah, she's the beast is coming in the next page. It's the white god of Kilimanjaro. And we see Buana Beast in, like, fully, like, in the light for the first time. And he's this enormous, super jacked white guy in a loincloth with this, like, helmet that's like a red like a juggernaut helmet but with like leopard print pointy eyepiece it really has like a luchador vibe yes costume and that makes sense because it it takes place in like california where there's like a big luchador yeah you know yeah well he 100 percent could totally just be a luchador Uh, and he just decides to like openly assault uh star labs at this point and he's like uh, running through the city and like input comes in over the mine bridge sick hammering pain the smell of chemicals sharpened steel and diarrhea like it's like oh the city is gross like I love cities but I, even I'm like okay yeah they're, they're, they can be pretty fucking gross and he's like the cops are shooting at him and he doesn't care and then we got to Buddy and like he's trying to like reach out to find these animals as he's like bleeding out uh, my consciousness radiates out and touches an old cat marking its territory, two cockroaches eating a third, a half-blind pigeon, and below me there's just concrete, concrete and dirt and earthworms? Yeah. And he copies the power of an earthworm and grows his arm back. This is all one of two things in this that made me think about the Pattern Master. Because there's this where he grows his arm back, um, which was very similar to that thing. And then later on he has like a mind fight with the beast. Yes. Uh... Which was also like, oh, I was like, this is like the Pattern Master. I like also, at that point, from that point on, for the rest of the story, his one, he's missing one arm of his jacket. Yeah, but also he talks about how like growing the arm, his arm grows back and it like it doesn't have the tattoo anymore that it used to have and like all his scars are gone. But I like this sequence because it is like this thing where we get that previous page that I was talking about with that narration about the beast where it's like the city's gross and dead and disgusting. And then we have this, which starts off like that, too, where it's like, I can't find any fucking animals, and, like, the only thing I can find is, like, an old cat and a damaged pigeon. And But then it's like, there is still life, like, everywhere. Like, you just have to reach for it. But, like, even underneath the, like, weight of the city and all of this concrete and steel, there are earthworms. And there's, like, something kind of beautiful about that. So then he finds the homeless man who was fused with the rat and he realizes that he's sick and he himself is dying from what happened to him. And he gets, of course, into the phone booth again and he calls Star Labs. He's still like marveling at his arm that has grown back (laughs) while he's doing that. But then we cut to back to, you know, his family and uh, this is where it gets really upsetting. Yeah. Like it's already, this issue is like really ratchets up the upsetting from the beginning. Um, But the hunters are threatening uh her and they fucking grab the cat and feed it to a dog well also another thing that seems very relevant like after going through this whole this is kind of there's this these men are bullies and they're picking on ellen because they get this impression from her from the way she looks and how she reacts that she's like a liberal woman and an independent woman and a feminist 
and they don't like that. So part of this is fueled by like the hunter kind of mentality, but then also a lot of it is fueled by this sort of wanting to punish her as an independent, free-thinking, strong woman. Yeah, and so I they also- start tormenting her and her daughter and threatening this cat. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, which is it's really disturbing, and I guess like you said, this is like the sort of horror part of it. They get the dogs to attack the cat. Yeah, like yeah. And that really affects like yeah, I mean, Ellen, I- and she starts fighting with them, and they hit her with the like butt of their shotgun, and she tells. Maxine to run away and you realize like the one panel in the middle they show Maxine and you see like how little she is yeah. and that kind of makes it even more horrible because now she's in the position where she's a little girl and she has to go to get help to save her mother from being attacked by these like brutal hunters yeah and it's also this thing where it's like these are guys like what they were saying that like feel they feel an entitlement to the life of these animals and they feel like, they can do whatever they want with something if it's not human. And it's, like, showing that that ideology is dangerous because all it takes for you to do fucked up things to another person is to just be like, well, they're not quite as human as me. Yeah. It's some fucking lady. How's it that much different than the animal that I... Like, it's like, once you accept that you have, like, dominion over living creatures, it's really not that hard to extend that thinking to conclude other humans. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, this... I mean, we see it a lot on Twitter these days, like these owning these snowflakes and owning these yeah. liberals. And, and I think it's kind of like, it's the same thing. So then it cuts to Buddy, and he Star Lab shows up, and they have all these biohazard suits, and they take him and the rat man... They never give his name, which is a shame, but yeah. they take him to their lab. And then, I guess this is what you were talking about. It's a little bit of, like, the origin story of the Buana Beast. And you see, like, he's, like, there in Africa during a civil war. And one of his um, friends is killed by the rebels. And there's a weird scene where he creates a uh, lion, a flying lion. A lion with bat wings. Yeah, and they think he's like a myth when he shows up. But yeah, so it's like he he has this friend that they they he went to school with and they went to Africa together and then the civil war breaks out and he's like up on the mountain being the mysterious mountain jungle hero and his friend is is amongst the people and gets caught in this war and is executed by this uh general. Did you see the one part where he drinks some kind of potion? Yeah, that's where his like powers come from. Oh, I from think. the potion? He's wearing it around his neck at one point too. Like as like a, almost like a talisman, but yeah, yeah, this dude kills they ex- execute his friend, and then he uses the lion to like tear that guy's head off, and he goes into this like horrible rage, and then it's just this like this all this awful stuff where he he goes into this horrible rage at like what these dudes did to his friend, and he he rains terror on upon them, and then he returns to the mountain, and while he was gone poachers have taken away the apes right and then i guess it turns out that what was her name dejuba dejuba she is an ape but she's highly intelligent she's more intelligent than an average mm-hmm. ape and he's able to communicate with her and that's where it's kind of implied that they have this really close-knit relationship and she gets taken to star Labs, which is how she ends up at the lab and how he ends up 
going to try to find her. Yeah. So then he breaks into the lab and he terrorizes the scientist until he finds the information that he wants. And he kills the security guard. Yeah, it's also applying, like, there's, like, um, he's releasing this, like, field that's, like, this, like, mental field. Like, because, like, the scientists are getting, like, agitated and they have, like, headaches and all the animals are screaming. And it's, like, this, I remember reading this, like, um, as, like, a early, my early teens. And, like, this whole sequence, I remember, like, it, it like, giving me, like, a headache. Thinking about how, like, awful all this stuff is. Like, I, I, this whole thing has, like, a really, like, queasy, claustrophobic kind of feeling to me. Yeah, yeah. because at one point when the scientists are being held by the beast, one of them says, go get Dr. Myers. And then it cuts right to the next scene, and it's Maxine running home to get her neighbor. And it's kind of like a reflection of the two different situations that are unfolding the same exact way, but they're different. Yeah, they're kind of like reflections of each other. And she... she finds, you know, she finds Mr. Wiedermeyer, uh, yeah, Meyer and tells him, you know, what's going on, and he lifts up his hat, and in the most shocking reveal of this issue, He looks like Teddy Roosevelt. I was going to say he's Wilford Brimley. <laughs> oh, I thought he looked like Teddy Roosevelt. I think that was supposed to be, like, a comment on, like, oh, I hunters. Think, I don't know. If, if he, if it's, if either of those are intentional, then it probably is that he's supposed to look like Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, he's got, like, a big mustache, <laughs> and he's, like, he, he's, like, your mom's where? And he's going to. You know, he obviously he's going to go help. And then uh, this is when, like, so the Beast gets to Juba and is, like, escaping. And Buddy is, like, clearly still, like, weak or whatever. Or he's being affected by whatever field he's projecting. Because he just kind of, like, bowls him over. And it's at this point that uh, Dr. Myers explains what's actually going on here. Which it me which it reveals that that skate punk's t-shirt was foreshadowing. Yes, uh, which is that they are working on a bioweapon, a strain of anthrax bacillus for the military, and they were trying to make it so that it would only affect. So it was like a way to only affect livestock. Right. So you would use it to cut off your enemy's supply lines. But here's an interesting thing too that comes up when they show the Juba and she's in the mountains. She also is wearing yeah, the potion, mm-hmm. which makes me think that he might have shared it with her to give her enhanced power. Well, I think she is like the keeper. I would have to go back and look at the things. I think she's the keeper of it because when they ca- catch her, it falls off. And, then and so I think he has it from her. Uh-huh. But yeah, so there, I like the way that this is. No, I don't like it. It's upsetting. But like, I think it's smart the way this is set up because he explains like, we're trying to do, like, humane warfare. Like, this isn't supposed to affect people. It just affects the livestock. And it's like, in trying to create a humane weapon, they're still creating something that hurts animals. It's it's designed effectively, working at 100% capacity. It still kills animals. But also, in order to make sure it can't hurt humans, they infect apes with it. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah we're trying to save people's lives by brutalizing these noble creatures and the reason that they captured Dejuba is because she's like this missing link she's like an evolved ape so it's like it should give them extra information or something but like that's why they do it and he reveals that to to Buddy and then he explains like the symptoms of the disease and Buddy's like clearly horrified I uh, think too at that point I mean it takes Buddy a while to get there but I think at this point he realizes that part 
Star Labs is a bad place, and they are yeah. partially responsible for what is happening outside of it. And then it cuts to back to Ellen, and she's being held captive, and it looks like one of the hunters is going to rape her, and Dr. Yeah. and Mr. Wiedermeyer shows up, and there's a confrontation, and before he can do anything, one of the other hunters shoots the hunter that is going to attack Ellen, and kills him yeah he says it's in the name of god right it's gone too far and it's like you know it's a it's so, like it's like this comic is like building to this point about like how you know how do we deal with other people like it's like eventually like the refrain that gets repeated at the end of this story is like we never should have left the trees but it, like they, in this moment the two hunters become this like microcosm for society and it's like at what point do you stand up and fucking stop somebody from being a piece of shit well yeah because at, at, right after this when ellen is realizes that she's saved she's so filled with adrenaline she starts hitting the hunter's body with a stick and mr wiedemeyer is kind of like that's enough like even like in her own kind of way she can't control herself yeah which i mean you blame her but then the the really fucking heartbreaking like last panel of that Paige is like Maxine being like, "Mommy, what about the kittens?" And she's holding this like little kitten. Yeah. Um, and then we cut to uh, Buddy freaking out on the scientist for being a piece of shit. This is like the saddest part to me. Oh God. This like yeah, this like really got to me. Like it really made me like tear up when I was reading it. So Buana Beast takes the Jubu's. She's dying, and there's yeah. nothing he can do to help her. And he wants to take her back to where. She came from, but the closest thing he can find is, like, the gorilla... Yeah, the zoo. The gorilla enclosure at the San Diego yes. Zoo. And he, yeah, he's, like, carrying her, and it's, like, the Pieta. And he's, like, I'm going to take you home. We're going home. Like, it's so sad. And all the other gorillas are screaming because, like, his, like, emotions are affecting them. And they don't know what's going on. And then, like, it ends with him, like, screaming his head off. Yeah, it's also, like, this thing where, like, this whole time it's, like, you know, all oh, the the mind bridge and my connection with the apes and I'm the white god of Kilimanjaro and the beast that walks. And then in this moment where he's, like, clutching her and she's dying, he refers to, like, this childlike state. And he's just, like, oh, Jesus, please don't let her die. It's yeah, so it's, sad. It's extremely intense. And it's, like, a comment. I mean, even at this point there's a comment about, like, keeping animals in captivity, keeping them in zoos and mm. things like that. But it's also like this thing about like humanity. Like in this moment, he lo- he loves this animal and he cares about the animals. But even in this moment, when he loses control, he's making them suffer. Yeah. Like he can't help it. Like it's like humans are fucked up creatures. Um, while with wiser beasts huddled together and stomp their ears against the sounds of pandemonium, the tears and the wailing, the hoofbeats, the howling, and the white god's rage. And that is that's the end of this issue. And he's just, like, screaming over her body as she's, like, clearly dead now. We also get to see in the sequence that he's got... They were told that there's a red mark at the place of infection with the, from the anthrax. And we see that on his arm in this yeah. sequence. So we know that he's infected. Um, so then it cuts to the next, episode, the next one, volume four. Issue four. Mm-hmm. We have all lived in the forest. Uh, yeah, when we all live in the forest. Yeah, and it shows Buddy, he's, like, reading Maxine a, a bedtime story. <laughs> this also makes me really sad. He's reading her Where the Wild Things Are, and it's clear that, like, the, the, it's drawing this, well, like, 
there, every character is reflected in this, right? Like, Buddy is Max, and Maxine is Max, but it's also, like, it makes me retroactively even more sad for the Beast when it's like, oh, he is, he is Max. Like, he, he went to live where the wild things are, and, like, then now he's so fucking sad, and he's infected with a bioweapon. I also, like, this is extremely 80s, and especially, like, 80s movies, the next part, where, like, Buddy goes to the library to do research on, like... <laughs> this man and he like looks him up in this like encyclopedia or like who's who of superheroes and reads his backstory and then he's also a little vain he looks up his own story. <laughs> yeah they, they said that he's presumed retired and he's really <laughs> insulted by that which i also like this because the who's who was a real thing that dc published that so i have a bunch of those that was like their equivalent of the marvel handbook this is also what i wanted to like i mean we'll talk about this probably at the end when we do our overall thoughts but this whole series has like a really sort of meta fiction feel oh it's gonna it's gonna be more it gets it really goes some places with that yeah so then buddy reads up on buona beast and he goes to the san diego zoo to try to mediate the situation they know that dejuba is dead and he i mean even though he went home and he still only has one jacket so he's still wearing the jacket with only one arm at this point Mm mm-hmm yeah, and he shows up and the, in the, he tries to talk to the Beast and is met only with violence. Uh, he gets punched into the pond with the flamingos. And he's like, ah, the old Baker charm works every time. And then this whole sequence of them fighting is intercut with this sort of desperate uh, attempt to save the lives of Yeah, these. even Cliff is involved in trying to help these four little kittens. There's three yellow kittens and one black and white kitten. Mm-hmm. And they get um, Mrs. Wiedermeyer involved. Uh, Morris, we find out, is the name of her husband. And she tells them, like, straight up, like, look, we can't. These kittens are dead. Like, there's one of them is, is surviving, but, like, the other ones are lost. Uh, and then, like, that very, like, real sort of humane domestic tragedy is intercut with this brutal struggle between animal gods in the zoo. And, like, I love, like, the art in the sequence. Like, Buddy's, like, walking around in this, like, fake jungle with the flamingos. And, like, he sees in the distance a fusion of a gorilla and a tiger that he's like, I'm just going to avoid that. And you're like, dude, you're in a story. I know that it's going to fight you at some point. <laughs> Check off Tigerilla. He says, I decided on the better part of Valor this time. And he flies away. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah, and he goes to, and then he, he, I like this like part of like tactics where he goes to like, the reptile house mm-hmm. to like get a bunch of animal abilities. And then gets in a fight with like a, a like a griffin, basically. And there's like this like brutal fight where he ends up having to kill this thing. Uh, what does he say? Uh, at 10 feet above ground ground i forced the animal's four legs apart as hard as i could causing its shoulder blades to scissor together and burst its heart yeah that was brutal and he's like clearly uh fucked up about that and he's like limping around and then he's like uh you know out of it and the tigerilla gets the jump on him (laughs) and they end up fighting and he retreats into like the gondola above the like savannah enclosure and he, he, I like also like this part where it's like the Buona Beast is gonna do something with an elephant, and it's like 
Buddy has to stop him because it's like whatever thing he makes out of that elephant, you're not going to be able to defeat it, buddy. <laughs> and so he hits him with the elephant's strength. Uh, and then that's when they have their like pattern master mind battle. Because uh, he takes some of Buana Beast's own abilities. And so they get locked into this mind th- battle like through the, the power of the helmet or whatever. Uh, and then because he is infected with anthrax, uh, the beast collapses. Yeah, and that's when Buddy takes his helmet off. Yeah. And then they have this sort of conversation. And then it cuts to this really sad part where they're having a funeral for the three kittens that didn't make it. And then Buddy, who's having this sort of cathartic kind of conversation with the beast... They realize that he's sick, and then Buddy decides he wants to help him. Yeah, but there's this part where the Beast is like, we were promised paradise, and we turned it into an abattoir. Everywhere we go, we leave things bleeding and screaming. And it's like, he's talking about humanity, but he's talking about himself. He thinks he's dying. And he's like, we have to be stopped. Mankind has to be stopped. There's nothing left. We think we own the world, but we've fallen so far. And there's still no bottom. Like, it's like... And it feels... It's still real. Like, it's like we just won't stop fucking taking and taking and consuming and eating and destroying everything. And this is when Buddy uses the Beast's powers to fuse... His fusion powers that he absorbed Mm -hmm. to do something to his white blood cells to sort of neutralize the animals. He fuses the white blood cells together to make them stronger. Like, the same way that where his combinations of animals are stronger than... Yeah. The things they made. And it's again, it's like Buddy is getting very smart about using not just his powers, but other people's powers. Yeah. And he fixes the gorilla and the tiger. And they have this sort of kind of like cheesy like moment where the tiger and the gorilla and him are all together. And they're... Yeah, the tiger licks his hand. But also there's um, one of the drawings on Maxine's wall in the opening sequence was of a friendly tiger. Um but yeah, he's also like where he just straight up calls it out. It's like his body has no defense against disease. He came all the way from Africa to die in a zoo, and there was nothing I could do. Where it's like, yeah, it's like also true about like every lots of lots of animals that are just in the zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he he fixes everything, and he goes and he's he uh, gets he in a fight to- with Doctor Myers, and he tells him what he's doing is barbaric and immoral. And then he, he loses. Punches him in the nose. <laughs> he says, "I thought I'm not going to lose control. I'm not going to hit him. I'm not." And then he punches him. <laughs> yeah, which is very satisfying. Uh, and then he goes home, and we see that one of the kittens survived, and it's this little black and white cat uh, that's going to live. That we see over the next couple of issues becomes Buddy's like best little best buddy. Yeah. Um, and then the end sequence is Buana Beast. Shows back up. He throws Dejuba's body down on Dr. Meyer's desk and says, you and Dejuba are going to be together now. Yeah, I'm not going to kill you. And like as like a message, he fuses him together. And then his now that he no longer fits the rigid category of humanity, his old colleagues take him and do to him what he had been doing to all the animals. Yeah. And like it again ties in that theme I talked about where it's like, once you're just like, I can do whatever to this thing that fits outside of the category I fit myself into, then it's not a long step to just put everyone outside of that category, and that's what happens here. But it's kind of like, it's fitting that that's his punishment, but it's very disturbing because once he oh. fuses them, he still looks like the scientist, and then his colleagues are just like, well, here's a gorilla, let's take it. Yeah, and he's screaming, he can't communicate. It's very disturbing. 
So that's the end of this first story, which weirdly this this whole overarching forged story doesn't have a, a unified name. I mean, I tend to think of it as the name of the last issue, like when we all lived in the forest. But what did you think coming to the end of this one? Because originally this was going to be all there was. Yeah, see, this is if this was all there was, this makes sense because this was this was a story about animal rights. This was mm-hmm. a story about like the environment and man's impact on it. It's like a story about like how awful people are to animals, and that sort of makes sense. And it really does sort of introduce Buddy as a potential advocate for animal rights. I mean, he becomes later on. He's specifically called out for being like yeah, well, for it, working with activists and things like that. But I think like yeah, like that kind of wraps up the whole story, and it really kind of fits that sort of agenda, which is to talk about like animal experimentation and man's treatment of animals and it would have been funny if this was the only issue because it's like buddy it starts with buddy being like i want to be a superhero again and then he has a superhero adventure that is horrifying and traumatizing and then if that had been all of it then he would have just quit immediately again but also i think it's it shows like the small scale Mm -hmm. of the superhero work that buddy does yeah. You know, like Superman's like, hey, I just came back from a giant invasion. And Buddy was like, well, I was there too, but you don't even remember me. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I got to go to this other big event that's happening. And Buddy is like literally fighting one guy. Yeah. Yeah, no. That, but now we get to issue five, which is the jam. Like I said, this is this is the good shit. This is one of my favorite single issues stories in all of comics. It is the Coyote Gospel. See, I, this is what I was saying. This obviously is the start of a longer yes. story arc. Also, this is completely bananas in oh, the way it's that bonkers. it takes. Yeah, and it's kind of really modern and kind of like like after reading four issues, you were like, okay, this is a superhero fights a bad guy and blah blah mm. blah. This is kind of like you're like, ah, oh, this is Grant Morrison. This yeah. is weird. This is meta. This is kind of like avant-garde and like once you realize what's going on and you think back to the previous pages you start to see like the clues but because you're like this can't possibly be what i think it is you don't pick up on those clues until like halfway through the issue and then you're like this is kind of crazy yeah the we'll start start right away though the cover i think is amazing it's um buddy laying in like the desert and there's tracks of like a truck that make like a cross that he's like essentially crucified on but the lower half of his body is hasn't been painted in yet and we see the hand painting in the details on the drawing and like he's in full color and the ground he's laying on is totally black and white and so like from the jump you're like what is this (laughs) like what is happening here but yeah so the story starts with these two people this girl and this guy, and he's a trucker, and he's picked her up, and she's like a runaway hitchhiker who's trying to make it to L.A., and she's like, I'm going to be, I had my tarot cards read, I'm not going to be some loser. And this guy, it's not said out loud, but I think the implication is that he's gay, um, and that he... He looks a lot like Freddie Mercury. Yeah, he's got a big mustache, <laughs> and he he was... And he talks about a person that obviously means a lot to him. Yeah, he, he had this friend, Billy, who like helped him get clean, and... Uh, get his life back on track, and, you know, he says specifically, like, I, the, one of the other big implications is he said, 
is that if it hadn't been for Billy, he would be hooked on smack or dying in an AIDS ward. Mm -hmm. Which is like, okay, he could be dying in an AIDS ward from uh, unclean needles. But I think there's an implication that there's a a deeper relationship between him and Billy. And, like, these two characters who are kind of, like, on the fringes of society who are... One of them is going in one direction of life and one of them is coming down from in the opposite direction... They have this sort of connection on the road, and they're singing Roadrunner by Jonathan Richmond, the Modern Lovers. Um, and then he they're... works for Ajax Trucking Company. Yes. Uh, and they hit something with the... He hits something with his truck uh, that scrambles out into the road in front of them. And it's this, like, humanoid, animalistic figure. Uh, and they hit it and drive by, but we get this lingering panel on the thing with its, like, midsection destroyed. And a single caption box that just says pain yeah and it's kind of like in the beginning you think that this might be like a werewolf story yeah it looks like a werewolf it also kind of looks like the rat thing from the previous story and it starts to pull itself back together we get this narration about how the the pain and like this um you know this pain this uh detailed narration about how its body gets back together and then it says behold the miracle of resurrection the coyote gospel that was one year ago we get a full shot of this thing which is like this humanoid coyote with like wild eyes and a drooling mouth and it's got some kind of thing in a tube that tied to a string around its neck and it's silhouetted against the sunlight i love this image yeah it's crazy and then we cut to buddy at, at home and there's a televangelist going on and on about how jesus wants your money on the tv while buddy throws away all the meat in the house and of course cliff is like both disgusted at his dad and also grossed out by the concept that they may have to be vegetarian. He doesn't want to eat tofu. Classic. Like, a, See, that's the thing. For many, many for people, if we got any Zoomers listening, what you might not understand is that for many, many years, Americans didn't understand how to cook tofu. And everyone thought tofu was bad because people became vegetarians and went, well, I guess I have to eat tofu. And then they didn't like season it or marinate it or cook it in any good way. And tofu got a really bad reputation in America, which it doesn't really have now. I also think, too, it's also the height of like this whole like real men don't eat quiche yes. kind of movement. So Ellen shows up from work and she's like a total 80s business <laughs> mom. She's got like a business skirt suit on with a ruffle top and she's got like her sort of like lily tomlin like short hair power hairdo yeah and she gets like in a rage and buddy is wearing really short cut off <laughs> shorts and a really tight t-shirt that has like a bear paw on it that i assume is like some kind of surfing brand or something um and they have this conversation like they they get in this fight again like this comic is not about like their harrowing relationship but they try it's like the reactions are always real and it's like flawed they get in this fight where it's like you should have consulted me, but also she can't be like, no, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna still eat meat, even though you're animal man. And so it's like there's really no solution here, and he just kind of storms off, but also like an emotional dork. He's been animal man for a long time, yeah, and now he's just having this awakening, yeah. So then she, he, yeah, he like storms off and says, "Don't expect me home for dinner," and she's like, "Fine," mm-hmm. and he flies out. Yeah. Presumably to go to the desert for some, like... Just blow off some steam, I guess. Yeah. But he's, like... There's something, like... He's feeling this thing, like, in the air. He, he says, like... Uh, there's, like, a tension. Like, a storm, an earthquake. It's, like, the world holding its breath. And, like, this becomes, like... There's hints at this, like... There's something happening in the world that's going to be important later. That's hinted at continually throughout this. But then we cut back to our dude. 
with the mustache, and he's looking all haggard and unshaven, and his hairline is farther back than it was before, and he's hunting something. He says, two weeks after we saw the devil on the highway, he watched Billy go under the wheels of a truck. And then the really sad part is, he says that the thing that, in the end, it was the paper he picked up four days ago in L.A. That was what really did it. And we see prostitutes slain in drug raid. And it's a picture of the girl that he was driving. And, like, this dude's, like, clearly at his end of his rope. And he hunts down the coyote. And, like, <laughs> this thing is, like... There's this brutal sequence. I keep saying brutal, but there's this very violent sequence of him hunting him, which is then reframed in a really absurd way when we find out exactly what the coyote is. But there's this like silent sequence of him like sneaking up on him, and he can't get his hands to stop shaking, and he shoots the thing. And the specific important detail here is that it falls off of this cliff into the canyon, and it pedals its feet briefly. Its feet pedal empty air, and we get this like sequence of like identical panels but with the coyote falling and it hits the ground in a big cloud of dust and it's like this is where it's like starts to imply this is where you're like wait i think i know what's happening here right yeah because at one point you see him like putting these giant tnt sticks of dynamite in the sort of crevices near the the cliff and then also at one point he starts throwing these giant boulders on top of the coyote and then this is like the part, totally poor planning on Buddy's part, but this is the part where he shows up. Yeah. Um, also, this dude just melted down his cross to make a silver bullet to kill this thing. Again, it's like clear, like, we're supposed to think initially this is a werewolf thing, but you're like, it's a big coyote, and it went in the air yeah. before it fell in a big cloud of dust. Like, what And he is... works for Ajax Trucking, yeah. and he's kind of like... They were singing Roadrunner. Uh, and then... He tries to stop the coyote from setting off the tripwire that blows up the TNT. And we see this thing, and it's all badly burnt and covered in soot with its, like, arm blown off. Um, And it starts growing back together. And then Buddy lands, and this thing hands him... It, like, takes the tube off its neck and unfurls a piece of paper and hands it to him. And we get to see the gospel according to Crafty. And this is the best part. I love I mean, this it so is, much. So it like even the comic book art style changes to sort of this cartoony kind of like Roger Rabbit world. Yeah, so he's he's Wiley Coyote. He's crafty coyote, but he's Wiley Coyote. And he lived in a Looney Tune world where everything was constant chaotic cartoon violence. Uh, a time when Beast was no one could remember a time when Beast was not set against Beast in an endless round of violence and cruelty. Uh, until Crafty, who one day he gets his shit rocked by his Roadrunner equivalent and blown up by his own canyon, and he has enough, and he marches into an elevator and confronts God. And I, this is the part that I really like because this is the part where you realize, like, oh, okay, this is like a comment on like these Looney Tune cartoons because God is the artist mm-hmm. who creates these scenarios for his own amusement. Yeah. And so he's like, God spoke unto Crafty saying, you must be punished for this rebellion against my will. Nevertheless, I'm a good God and my judgment will be tempered with mercy. And he condemns him to the dark hell of the second reality uh, and sends Crafty to the quote unquote real world. And that's what he is. He's not a werewolf. He is a cartoon coyote. But then also Buddy can't read 
the scroll because it's like in cartoon language with the, which is all like exclamation points and asterisks and, and parentheses and he says I'm sorry I can't read it yeah and then but like the best is like the crafty is like laying on the bottom in the desert and mm-hmm. like there's a vulture like eating his spleen yeah. like Prometheus yes exactly uh, and then the the uh, the dude I can't remember if they give him a name or not he he says uh, he couldn't stop thinking about the cross, about the way it had melted in the crucible, the way the inscription had dissolved into meaningless hieroglyphics and became lost in a shining puddle. All my love, Billy. Like they're in love, and he shoots him with the silver bullet through the gospel, and it seemingly kills him permanently. And he this dude just collapses, and his I don't know if he's supposed to be dead or not, but his last words that we see him say are, "Oh, Billy, I did it. I saved the world." And Buddy is just like looking on. Utterly confused. He has no clue what has happened here. And the camera pans out and Crafty is like crucified on the crossroad of the desert highway. And we see the hand of God painting in the blood around his body. But the best is the last line. The end, folks. (laughs) But it's like... That's what I was saying. Is this like metafiction or is this the beginning of another storyline that comes up at a different time it's the beginning of this like exploration of metafictional themes that will come up throughout this story and it's also hinting at like this broader spiritual journey that buddy's gonna have to go on but yeah it's like i mean i think it uh, also in in and of itself it's a comment on you know on narratives the way that narratives connect to religion the way that both seem to require this kind of ritual violence this cycle of like violent endings and redemptions and resurrections it's drawing a parallel between the constant suffering of a cartoon character and jesus crafty is jesus but he's also wily coyote they both have to suffer for our sins when he wants the violence of the cartoon world to stop he has to go and suffer in the real world and then he finally dies because it's like buddy shows up and now the main character is here so the story can have an ending that's always been my interpretation of why he dies at the end instead of just resurrecting like he did over and over again yeah i don't know that's i just really like this issue it's very sophisticated i mean it really does sort of make a comment it's sort of like an intersection between like the comic book as like storytelling and then the cartoon as like entertainment Mm. and they like interact and i kind of like this idea that like if you're a cartoon, your creator is, like, your god. Mm-hmm. And then, like, being in this, like, endless cycle of, like, animated violence, you know, because, like, the coyote never gets any kind of redemption. Yeah. And I also think it's, like, showing this thing where it's, like, all of these kinds of stories are almost all the same story, right? Like, the characters in the superhero comic are still suffering and over and over again and rising from the dead and not really getting anywhere. And just because it's wearing a different clothing doesn't make it really any different than a cartoon. All, like, I think Morrison's kind of drawing this, like, on this idea that, like, at the core, almost all stories are the same story. And, like... Crafty is Jesus, is Crafty, is Buddy, is every fictional character. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Uh, so that was like one of the ones that I liked the most. Yes. And then the next one is one of the ones that I like the least. I like this story. I understand not liking it. It's weird. So this one's a tie into Invasion, which is like, so uh, we've talked about Crisis on Infinite Earths. Invasion was sort of the next attempt to do a big 
crossover with all the books, but it not in a way like Crisis had the thing of like we have to clean house, and it has to be a big multiversal story where we fuse everything together and reboot the continuity. This was just like let's do a big story where we get all the characters involved, and the premise is literally just that like a bunch of different alien, evil alien races from the history of the DC universe form like a axis of evil and attack the Earth, and it's kind of paying off a little bit on. Um, the the sort of way that the Thanagarians are being written, like, you know, remember in Swamp Thing when they show up and they're like these, I mean, they're clearly like a metaphor for like America. They're like these like imperialists who with all of these shady projects. And like, this is kind of like the big payoff on that, where they become one of the forces in this invasion. And I think that the Thangarians are just a bunch of assholes. They're the biggest assholes in the DC universe. <laughs> they're huge dicks. Um, I they're mean, like, they were assholes in Swamp Thing, and they're even more pretentious and, like, jerky in this. I don't think we have to go through this beat by beat, but the core of this is that there's this dude who's... What is his name? Uh, he's an artist. Yes. He's, like, a concept artist. and Rokara So. And he creates a life bomb. Yeah. He's... It's... Again, like, I like this story because it gets back to the stuff we were talking about. Like, this is very much a story about toxic masculinity, right? And it's about, like, I think in a way it's kind of a takedown of, like, the sensitive artist, right? It's, like, Morrison showing us that, like, you know, fucking, just because you're not a guy who works in a factory or a soldier doesn't mean you're free from toxic masculinity. Like, Jackson Pollock is just as much of a toxically masculine figure as John Wayne is. And, like, that's what's going on with this guy. He's he's this artist who was rejected by his dad who was a warrior, who continually works on these complicated art projects that are almost all predicated on suffering. And he becomes obsessed with... Wait, does Grant Morrison have dad issues? Is that what this is? I don't really think so. He ta- he's ta- They've talked about their parents, um, like, in Super Gods. Their dad was like a... Like a nuclear disarmament activist. Oh, okay. I think Buddy is a portrayal of, of Morrison's dad more so than this guy's dad is. Because it's like, this guy is obviously like, he has an issue with his father, but then it cuts to a singing of like, Buddy, he's so confident in his like masculinity and he's comfortable in his own skin and he's wearing a tank top and he's with his friend and they're both eating like pink ice cream yeah. cones at his the friend, fair. His friend is wearing an Animal Man shirt, which is very nice. It's like wearing your, it's, you know, it's like I show up with my jacket with my kid boy pin on it to hang out with my friend Tyler. Um, but so, yeah. Yeah, like Buddy is really comfortable in like who he is and his identity and then it's cut in with this jerky kind of like Hawkman. Yeah, this like... He's an artist, but he's still, like, this, like, chauvinist and cultural imperialist. And he looks down on Buddy. He's obsessed with, like, these fractals and, like, life moving in these sort of, like, constant patterns. And he's working on specifically his martyr piece, which is this piece of art that's going to kill him. Uh, And he drinks, like, this poison, and he's going to set up this bomb that's going to cause, like, a catastrophic seismic event. And Buddy has to fight his bodyguard who's like this uh woman thanagarian warrior and he does look a couple of smart things he he like make gets them in the water because he knows that like that's gonna be have her out of her element he like sets her belt on reverse but it's all cut in with this guy's reflection on his life he like remembers his birth he remembers like his dad's funeral he sees the shape of the universe in this warlike infinite hawk fractal 
Uh, but he dies, and Buddy, like, freaks out because he can't figure out how to stop this bomb. And then a hand reaches down and pushes it. And then the last page is Hawkman standing over the bomb. And he goes, all you had to do was switch it off. So why are they all jerks, but Hawkman is not? Because he's like a rebel. Oh, okay. He's also a reincarnation of an Egyptian prince, maybe, sort of. So who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. There's really not much that, like, pushes... Buddy's plot along. No, I like the stuff with the artist, but like it's this could have been like this didn't need to have Animal Man in it. It's nice that he kind of gets a win, and I do like the moment where it's like even Hawkman, like it's before where he's disparagingly compared to Aquaman. It's like even Hawkman has one up on Buddy. So now this is totally irrelevant. Does this race have wings or they wear? It's it's a harness. It's a harness. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but the next issue I think is is better. I like this one because this one is sort of like Morrison's like comment on like Silver Age superheroes. Yeah. So this is like the invasion has happened already, and Buddy helped out in it. And then, in, as is his luck, instead of getting teleported to his home or to California, he winds up somewhere that he's pretty sure is maybe Miami. (laughs) Um, In the midst of a seemingly unrelated to the invasion attack of goofy looking red robots. Yeah, they're very sort of 1950s like B-movie robots and they're walking with their clamp hands. And And they're mostly just bumping into each other and exploding and not really doing anything. Yeah, and there's like one police officer who's trying to like deal with these mon- with these robots that they don't know where they came from. Yeah, and he thinks that Buddy's come to help him and he's like, yeah, I just showed up by accident. I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but he decides he's going to go look for the source. And he finds this guy in a ridiculous yellow and red supervillain costume who's about to take a header off of a building. And Buddy intervenes to stop him from jumping. So it turns out that this superhero is the Red Mask. Now, is this a pre No, this is a new, totally okay. new character. The f- funny thing... Um, late, way later, Morrison writes Batman. When they're writing Batman and Robin, there's a part where they bring the Red Hood back, who had become shown up as like kind of an, like almost like an antihero before, and they bring him back in a more villainous capacity. And the costume that he wears as the villainous Red Hood looks almost exactly like this, but grittier. Uh, there's two things that I really like about this. One is like he won these robots in like <laughs> a poker game villain. from another supervillain, mm-hmm. and that his like he has like a very sort of nineteen fifties iconic suit where he has the big Dracula he, collar, yeah, Dracula collar medallion, and like he has like an emblem that looks like his name, but also looks like a skull, so you know that he's a bad guy. Yeah, it looks like an R and a D, but it's also a skull, and then he's got a big dome helmet, and then he takes it off. And it's the guy looks like Vincent Price? Oh, I think he looks like John Polito. Oh, okay. He also does kind of look like Vincent Price. He's got a little thin mustache, and he's balding. And he tells Buddy his life story, which is like he was just some dude, and he found a meteorite. And he's like, yeah, you remember when all those meteorites were coming down <laughs> in the 40s? Like, it's like this, like, oh, you know, it was all the rage to be a supervillain back then. And it's like a commentary on fame, too. And we couldn't help touching them. Like, why were yeah. we always touching these, like... So he gets, a, like... A very useless power, mm-hmm. which he, is the death touch. He looks like Clark Gable when he's young, though. Yes. And he gets this death touch and accidentally kills his own dog, <laughs> and it's very sad. Uh, and he his wife leaves him, and he decides, like, in like this moment of crisis, like, you know what? I'm going to reinvent myself as a supervillain. 
And he teams up with this guy called the Veil. Is he a made-up character? I think he might be a pre-existing character. I also think he's maybe referenced in Morrison's Arkham Asylum comic. Oh, okay. Because uh, they mention him becoming this, like, specter at the bottom of Arkham Asylum. But yeah, he they team up and this guy eventually kind of, like, loses his, his shit and gets committed to Arkham Asylum. And then... And this is, like, the first time that they mention that. And this is when you... Sort of another indication that Buddy is in, like, the general... Yeah. Sort of entire... But then, and then, like, this dude retires, and now he's got, like, lung cancer, and he's dying, and this is going to be his big way to go out with a big bang. And he says, you know, paint the town red. And then one of the robots, like, rockets into the building, and he's like, ah, oh, it's the first time I saw one get over, like, ten feet. <laughs> um, and then Buddy is like, hey, you know, like, maybe I can, my, I got some connections to showbiz, like, maybe I can get you on TV, and you can, like, tell your story. And it's like... If this story was written now, then he would have, like, gotten, like, a documentary and, like, an HBO series about himself. Uh, but instead, he's like, ah, you know what? Um, sure, why not? And he throws his helmet off of the uh, the roof. And then when Buddy flies away to go deal with – to uh, – what is he – what is he – he flies away to go do something. To help with the robot. Like yeah. That. And then the guy just – he talks about how, like, all he ever wanted was to fly. Like, he wanted the power of flight. And he got the death touch. Uh, and he jumps off, and he's like, "I can do it. I can fly." And he hits the ground and dies. And that's the... this kind of reminded me of—I don't know if it's in the Watchmen series, but it's in—it was in the HBO Watchmen TV series. There was like this sort of ongoing plot where there was a TV show about like a Silver Age superhero, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like that. It kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, I can see that. Like, what happens when a superhero ages out or whatever. Yeah. And then we get this epilogue where Buddy is going to fly home, and there's this page where he's, like, suddenly in photo negative. And what we learn later is, like, something happens here that, like, it's, I guess it's supposed to be, like, the gene bomb going off or whatever, but it messes up his powers for a while. Yeah, uh, the gene so- bomb is, like, a bomb that the aliens set off as, like, a last-ditch effort that's supposed to, like kills humanity but what it ends up doing is just activating a bunch of people's meta genes when we get to doom patrol a bunch of the characters in that get their powers from the gene bomb i also like this because at one point the red mask makes a smith reference yeah where he says like you know tell you the story of my life mm-hmm. which i think is really he also says that his he, you maybe he is supposed to look at Vince Price because he says that his um he in the name is specifically supposed to be a reference to uh that that movie to, to the mask of the red death right see i also thought that it could have been a edgar Allan poe reference well that movie is that's an adaptation of the poe story is vincent price in that movie yes well there you go uh but yeah so the next issue uh there's this thing where we see this like computer somewhere that has the albert einstein quote i cannot believe that god plays dice with the cosmos uh, which comes back later. But the bulk of this issue is that um, Buddy's just, like, going about his day. He wakes up. He's feeling shitty because his powers are fucked up. Uh, he's Wait. he's in the Justice League now. He's got a ID card from Justice League Europe. Right. His wife makes fun of him about that. But now, do I guess a lot of superheroes have their powers scrambled by the gene bomb? Yeah, I don't remember specifically if there's which who it is. But they do reference later that some people's powers were sort of messed with by it i think they use that to nerf a couple of characters that are too powerful um i forget who they do that with 
So he's like, he has all these problems and he gets finally gets into the Justice League and his wife is trying to convince him to be honest with them about what's happening with his powers and he really doesn't want to because he wants to be in the Justice League. Yeah, and he's already, he's animal man. Like he already feels like, you know, he's got something to prove. Uh, but he goes to uh, wash up and his reflection's already wearing his costume and pops out of the mirror. And the rest of this issue basically is him fighting with Mirror Master, who's a flash villain. Right. Who has vague powers that involve mirrors. Um, and then Ellen comes home at one point and she's really pissed off because they're trashing the house. Yeah. And then she gets involved in the situation. And then I guess at one point he gets converted. He gets turned into a mirror. Yeah. So everybody he t- comes into contact with, he turns into a replica of that. <laughs> it's also a really funny, this is totally unrelated, but there's a really funny panel where he throws him out of the mirror master out the window and then like a neighborhood dog has a reaction shot to it. But it's like this whole thing, it seems like this just this silly superhero fight. And then the whole point of this is the reveal that there's actually something much more sinister happening here, which is that the government and the corporations are mad at Buddy for sticking his nose where it doesn't belong and working with these animal rights groups and standing up, you know, against like, you know, these corporate malfeasance and animal testing. And they basically, it's like hiring a Pinkerton to like beat up a union organizer. They hire the mirror master to basically just to get in Buddy's house and scare him. But I like how like Buddy is fighting him and fighting him and they're going on and on. And then Ellen shows up and she just like kicks him down the stairs and she's like, I've had enough of this. Like, get out. You're destroying my house. It's like reality. Like, you know, like. All these talks about, like, like after the Avengers, the movie, when they're like, they trash an entire city. Yeah. There's no, like, repercussions for that. It's kind of the same thing. And she, like, eventually the Mirror Master just retreats into a mirror, and he sort of leaves just with, you know, threatening. And he's, he's like, I think he, he might be Scottish. Yeah, yeah. I, but he's, he's like a hooligan. He's got that kind of vibe. Uh, but while Buddy is stuck being the mirror, Ellen is the one is who... like... It's something McCulloch. yeah. Even Evan McCulloch? Yeah. Uh, he I says like, he's the new Mirror Master. Yes. Yeah, because the original one is an American. He's just like a... Uh, he's a Flasher villain who comes up... With, I think he invents the technology. And that character, I think, dies um, at some point. And this dude, like, buys his technology on the black market, I believe. Yeah, because then... So he becomes like a mirror, and she has to break a mirror to set him free. Yeah, I was going to say, she figures out how to fix yeah. it. Which is by breaking this mirror. But it's seven years bad luck. And uh, then it cuts to... There's a shadowy figure that looks like Buddy watching them also. Yeah. And then you see like he goes to whoever hired him and he starts talking to him. And then you see like the giant like presidential seal and this mysterious figure who's like at some kind of like yeah. large desk. This is God Bless America. This is like, again, this is like my, one of my favorite eras of DC Comics. This is like, everyone was fucking mad about Reagan uh, and whatnot. And there, this was like when DC was most willing to make the um, government seem very evil and shady. This is like the same era that Suicide Squad is happening. Well, I think that becomes like a kind of like, it's almost like a reaction to like the Cold War. Yes. Where, Ameri- where the, you know, the shadowy government. But then this is the part that confuses me. It says epilogue two, and then it has like a story about this guy who's like, what is his name? John Highwater. Yes. 
And he is, like, talking about, like, the psychic pirate. And he's kind of, like, in the desert. Well, yeah, he's having, he has some kind of connection to nature and the animals and, like, totems. And he's like, why am I suddenly here? I don't remember. He's, like, having problems with his memory and with, like, this, having, this feeling of existential terror. And he wonders, could Einstein be wrong? And in Epilogue 3, we cut back to this computer. Uh, where? When does he say the psycho pirate thing? That might be that later. That comes up in the next video. Um, but yeah, so it cuts to the computer and it says, uh, I cannot believe that God plays dice with the cosmos. And something writes in, he doesn't, I do. The psycho pirate, we'll talk about it. I guess we could talk. It must come up in this issue because it's is the last issue of the volume, the next one. Um it's a silly Silver Age villain who has the power to manipulate people's emotions. And there's really, like, it shouldn't really mean anything to you when that character is brought up, as far as I know. This comic, this Animal Man makes the Psycho Pirate more important and, like, something bigger than he initially was. Yeah, so it's kind of like a dot, dot, dot. Like, it, it's going to continue on into an Or I th- maybe the Psycho Pirate shows up in Crisis. I, I, that might actually be where the Psycho Pirate... I think the Psycho Pirate shows up in Crisis and there's a weird thing where... He can like remember the other universes or something like that. Well, at the in this, I mean, this is the secondary part of the final issue in mm-hmm. this one. But he does like ha- he sort of questions himself about why he is having memories of something called the psychic pirate. Yeah, and I guess he's a physicist, which kind of implies that he might have some kind of like information about like an alternative world or something. I don't know. It's kind of very vague. It kind of really just sort of lays the very basic groundwork but the last episode i thought issue i thought would be your like ultimate favorite i like do like this one a lot i mean from the jump like you flip the to the next cover and it's like who's who's there but my boy the martian manhunter and he's got these two like goofy looking like uh you know workmen who are carrying all of this like crazy super tech with them and they're standing in the doorway of buddy's uh house and like Martian Manor is such like, a big figure. He takes up the whole page and he's pushed Buddy off into the corner and he's kind of peeking behind from behind the open door. These two workmen, too, remind me a lot of like Laurel and Hardy. Yes. So this is like saying like this is the comedy issue. Yeah. So like this issue, we, we get this thing where uh, Cliff is bullied basically for being Animal Man's son. And while that is he's happening... He's literally getting bullied at the playground. Yeah. While that is happening, Buddy is uh, playing with the cat, uh, and like Maxine is like watching, and she's like got her arms crossed because like it's her cat, and her dad is hogging the cat up, and he's like playing with it, and he's like, "Oh, what do you think? You're a lion? You're a tiger?" But and the cat is named TC. Yes, the cat. Yes. Uh, so Mac. So. Ellen is also frustrated because she's trying to, like... She's trying to work. Yeah, she's trying to work, and then they're trying to fix the house after this whole fight with Mirror Man, and the, someone's knocking on the door, and she's kind of, like, frustrated, like a frustrated mom who's had her, you know, she's at her wit's end, and she opens up the door. And it's Marsha Manhunter. And it's Marsha Manhunter. <laughs> and uh, he's just like, hello. Yeah, so he's come uh, to check on... He's come to check on Buddy and to welcome him into the Justice League Europe. And he's brought these two guys to install a security system and to help fix up the house because of the attack from Mirror Master. This is the best part. This is like bureaucracy at its best. Mm -hmm. There's a special perk for people who are members of the Justice League that 
their homes are repaired after they get trashed by supervillains. Yeah, they have special superhero home insurance uh, because <laughs> that just is going to happen too often. And this issue really like brings like, up this thing where it's like Buddy is really like the only major superhero operating at this point that has a kid. Well, that's what they were saying. And also, he's, like, the only one who, like, lives in a real house. He doesn't live, like, in a super... He doesn't have an animal cave. Yeah. <laughs> he just lives in a suburban home, like, in L.A. But I think it's funny that a lot of, like, writers and artists always depict, the, like, the Martian Manhunter as, like, the dad figure. Like, he yeah. just shows up, like, hi, I just wanted to welcome and also to fix your house and to, like, talk to you. I also love that he's just walking around... As the Martian, like he doesn't turn. He's a shapeshifter. He can look like anything. He doesn't turn into a like a normal looking dude. He's just a big green alien walking around Buddy's neighborhood, and they all know that he's Animal Man. Like this is where it really gets explicit. Where it's like, but he doesn't really have like a secret identity. Animal Man is more of a branding thing than anything. He could just be Buddy Baker. Well, that's what he. That's what the Martian Manhunter points that out. That like maybe at some point you might want to get like a secret identity or something like that. Yeah, but also like it interestingly sort of reframes every other superhero as being like paranoid. He's like one of the only ones with like a full family with like a kid and like a wife that lives with him, not just like an on again off again girlfriend that's a reporter. And but he's also one of the only ones that doesn't have a secret identity. Uh, And then it cuts like intercut between these scenes of like this domestic chaos is these scenes with John Highwater and this is what I was saying like he kind of like he, finds he looks comp- like he doesn't have any memory of what happened mm-hmm. well, we'll, we'll we'll find out what's going on with it but yeah it's supposed to be like I, this almost like uh, kind of like Hitchcocky sort of like paranoia thing going on with him where he's like he doesn't really know what's happening with his life and he finds this copy of Alice in Wonderland that has a note that says Ask the Psycho Pirate on it. Uh, and then we get Buddy flying around with Martian Manhunter, and he finally fesses up and tells him that like that his powers aren't really working. And then I really like this, where Martian Manhunter says, like, hey, the reason like I wanted you on the team is because you're Animal Man. Because like you've, you're fighting for something besides just... What does he say specifically? Because he kind of stunks on Superman. Uh, not simply for personal glory or the American way. Uh, like, he's fighting for the planet. And, like, that, Martian Manhunter sees that as being important. I also really like, like, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about this era of the Justice League is that Martian Manhunter is in charge. And we get to see, like, what his vision of what the Justice League is supposed to be is. And it's, like... He's kind of, like, a really good boss. Yeah, he is. I, I wish, like, it's one of the many things that I know how many times I have to talk about it. But it really does make me sad that he's kind of been cut out of the popular conception of what the Justice League is. He say- doesn't get to be in the movie... Could you see, like, Martian Manhunter, like, in a workplace comedy? I mean, that's kind of what he is in <laughs> Supergirl. He's the boss. And it's great. I, and I love him. Uh, but, yeah, he gives this really... I, I like this thing where he's like, you know, it's... The superhero team isn't just about, like, here's all the strongest guys. It's like, I recruited you because you represent something ideologically that I think is important to have on this team. And he's like, okay, so, like, what are we going to do about your powers? And that shadowy figure is also watching... Uh, cliff, but that's just like one page. And we get some slapstick where they're sh- and trying to install a laser in the house and they just start shooting things. And they kind of get like, they're baffled that Ellen doesn't want like a laser shooting <laughs> like security system in her house because she has kids, you know? Yeah. And then they're coming with this workaround, which is like, 
tell them to only come in the back door or whatever. It's like they, the laser so they don't shoot the kids. They saw only non-lethal things. And the idea is that you can enter the house through any door if you use... Or you, if you... Yeah, you can enter the house through the front door using a special key. But if you enter through the back door or you don't use the special key, you get trapped in a little cage. <laughs> um, which happens to Cliff at one point. But they take a break. And they, she's kind of... They don't understand why she's upset about this. Like... Mm-hmm. Like, other superheroes want these kind of security measures. Yeah. Um, and then Martian Manhunter is trying to help Cliff. He's kind of, like, assessing... Not Cliff, I'm sorry. Buddy. Buddy. He's kind of, like, assessing, like, how much the gene bomb has affected his powers. Yeah, but so what we get here, though, is, like, the way it's affected them is that they're... It's not that they're weak, which is what he keeps saying. They're too powerful now. Yeah. Every time he does it, he just draws on every animal in the vicinity immediately, and it overloads him uh, with pink Aquaman circles. Yes. Uh, and I also like that, like, Cliff is in a cage, but then also there's these rifles that pop out of the floor. Yeah. That are, like, trained on him, and he's kind of like, Mom? But, yeah, so he's, like, he tells them about it, and he's, like, they basically come to this conclusion, which is, like, he needs to figure out how his powers work before he can figure out how to fix them. And then they fly off, and he says, there's one thing I meant to ask you. How did Blue Beetle get in the Justice League? And there's, like, a panel of silence, and Marjorie Banner goes, hmm, good question. (laughs) Yeah, and then Cliff gets stuck in the thing, and he tells them about, now, Maxine draws a... This is cute. Picture for Martian Manhunter. She calls him Marshmallow. (laughs) Marshmallow Hunter. (laughs) And he was like, thank you, Maxine. Yeah, she's like drawing pictures of everybody. Uh, They establish how the security system works. And then Cliff is like bullies his sister and then reveals that like the reason that he's so angry is because these kids beat him up and stole his bike. And Martian Manhunter is like, well, I think I could do something about that. And so he grows to confront the kids. And when they start hassling him... Uh, a giant monster appears and scares the shit out of him. I and... like how the bullies just have a shirt that says Bon Jovi. <laughs> yeah, it just says Bon Jovi. Uh, one of them's wearing a vest. They're classic. He's smoking, even though he's clearly like 14. Uh, classic 80s bullies. And then uh, they get scared by this giant monster that is just, you know, it's Martian Manhunter in, in having shapeshifted. And then it's like, aha, funny moment. And then it's like this little thing where it's like... Uh, and, but he's like, ah, oh, you, know, you don't have to worry about them again. And he's like, well, no thanks to you. Why don't you get yourself some real powers, Dad? <laughs> and Marshall Manor is like smirking. Uh, and then the last thing that happens is this epilogue where there's this dude in Africa. Um, they're doing some kind of ritual with like, a fire. And these two, like, I think they're like rangers or something, show up. And they're like, what's this, what is, what's this guy going and this, this do, doing? And this guy puts his ear to the ground and he says... The earth speaks a great many dead in caverns sunless a burning egg. There is weeping in the ghost country. The gods are coming. And I guess that's kind of like a, a nod to what's going to happen in volume two. Yeah. Now you read the series. Yes. Okay. So you know what's going yes, on. I know what's going on. I don't want to spoil anything. No, no, don't. So. But yeah, so that ends with that big implication of the plot. Um, yeah. So that's the end of this volume. What'd you think? I liked it. I liked the themes. I mean, they're very 80s. Yes. At one point, I was expecting someone to say, like, meat is murder. It's, it's, I mean, or, they like, basically have, said that. have, like, a scene where someone has a fur coat and gets, like, red paint thrown on it. But I guess maybe that could come up in the future. I like that a lot. I like the art style. I mean, it was classic comic book, but it was kind of very modern in mm-hmm. the colors and sort of 
The panels were traditional panels, but there were some, like... Yeah, it's not as experimental, at least visually, as, like, Swamp Thing or Sandman. But I think that's fine, because this is supposed to be more of a grounded story, like... There's, there's, it's leaning in, like, you know, Swamp Thing and Sandman from immediately, they're like, they're, they're gods and the, the fate of reality. And this is supposed to sort of draw into that more gradually. So I think it makes sense for it to have a more grounded visual style initially. I also like that it was very clear that Morrison was saying, like, this is the end of, like, the golden age and this is the new modern age yeah. of comics. And, like, even the way that he deals with the older traditional like superheroes kind of like dismissing them and focusing more on like buddy yeah well i think is nice even when martian manhunter is like a classic character shows up his like attitude is much more modern he's like i said he's like thinking about like the um like what it means what being a superhero means and the message they're sending to the world and he's thinking more global i mean he's in the justice league europe he's thinking more globally than you would those characters are traditionally you like are like it's a it's a more sort of mature take on like the responsibility that they have which i really like which eventually like morrison writes the justice league and a lot of their run on the justice league is about that stuff uh and so we see this sort of the seeds of that here like morrison a lot of morrison's comics are concerned with the public perception of superheroes and like superhero as celebrity i also think that I mean, just like Alan Moore and just like Neil Gaiman, he is like, they are like... Yes, they. Comic book nerds. So what do we have coming up next? What's our next... Uh, We are going to read the Penelopead. Oh, okay. By Margaret Atwood, which is basically a retelling of the Odyssey from the perspective of Penelope, Odysseus's wife. Uh, with like a bunch of other stuff in there, like it, it's it's sort of more. It looks into her, like her history. Uh, it's cool. I think I think it's going to be an interesting conversation, and I'm excited to talk about Margaret Atwood because she's another writer that I like a lot that we haven't had a chance to talk about on the show yet. Yeah. Um, and this is also one that's like, I also think it's good to have a conversation about her that's not about The Handmaid's Tale because like that's <laughs> all anyone ever talks about, and like it's good, but like I, she's written a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Um. And then we're going to read Animal Man Volume 2. All right. Uh, so, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.